Welcome, everybody, to episode six, my favorite number of season two of the Third Kid Podcast. My name, of course, is Tristan Lemuel, and alongside me today is the usual suspect. His name is Alex Perez. How are you doing, man? I'm good, and um, we're having a bit of like Chemex coffee today. Yeah, coffee of choice today yeah. is uh, is a Chemex coffee, which I haven't done in a while. Um, it's it's part of the whole umbrella of the third wave coffee, uh, the third wave type of coffee. Uh, it's actually one of the prettiest uh, coffee instruments. It's a ve- it's it's like a it little a, it's a little um, glass vase. A vase. A vase. Yes, that's and, a fancy uh, way to say it. Yeah, I, I mean that's the way you have to say it, not vase. Vase, vase. not yeah, vase. It's not a vase, but maybe, yeah, maybe no, that's it was, it was my, a nice uh, little it was a nice little process. Yeah, uh, today on the show. Uh, George Sanchez, former head coach of the uh, Concordia Stingers women's soccer team, um, and I mean he's kind of like the uh, the women's soccer whiz. He's been in, he's been involved, only coached women's soccer. One of the few that have that I've done. I don't know. One of the few. I who am I to know? But he's only coached women's soccer, and he's always got good insight. Um, in the game specifically, uh, we have him on the show. We talk about because uh, he's been recently inducted in the Lac Saint Louis Hall of Fame. We talked about it a little earlier in the last show. Um, he basically for the people who don't know, Lac Saint Louis, one of the western parts of the Montreal Island. Uh, and yeah, we talk about that. We talk about Rian Wilkinson with him. He obviously he coached William uh, William coached Rian Wilkinson. Um, and we talk a little bit about uh, his because uh, he's he retired obviously from the Concordia Stingers in U Sports, and uh, how he's been dealing with retirement. If there's any uh, remnants of interest for uh, for coaching, <laughs> yeah. so uh, that's coming up. And also we have a whole second segment with all of the topics. We talk. A little bit about transfer rumors. We talk a little bit about the Montreal Impact. We talk a little bit about Europe. We talk a little bit about, and we bring back something that we've been doing in season one, um, and we're bringing it back on episode six. Uh, we're gonna call it the the third kit honorable mentions. Uh, we used to call it the lad of the week, but we didn't really like the word lad anymore. So we're calling it honorable mentions, like a little star in your. Uh, in your notebook when you were in, uh, in elementary school. Uh, so all of that will be in uh, in the second segment. But first, we need to go back to a friend of the show from our old podcast, The Pressbox Hattrick. We had him on the show, I think, five or six times. Um, and then we had him in episode one, in episode one, in season one, in the first iteration of The Third Kit, when we, uh, when we went through uh, the Euros two years ago. Uh, we had him on as... Uh, it's kind of like a little like a pundit of sorts, I guess. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, yeah. He he's he was our women's soccer pundit back on Pressbox and even on on Third Kit at times. And uh, yeah, it's exactly uh, always good insight with uh, with uh, women's soccer, with uh, local soccer a lot uh, here in Quebec, uh, and a guy with a lot of connections in the local soccer scene. So let's throw it to former head coach. Of the Concordia Stingers women's soccer team, it's weird to say former, yeah, <laughs> but former maybe possible free agent. He's but a free, not, no, yeah. but he told me we we DM'd the, <laughs> we, we, we DM'd him and I. It was funny because when he retired, before throwing it to George Sanchez, um, when he retired, I uh, sent him a. We, we were DMing. I sent him a DM saying, you know, happy retirement. Hope everything is well. Blah blah blah. 
this this type of you know just you know being nice kind of kind of those things uh and he was saying um Hey, I'm a, I'm a free agent now, so uh, whatever happens, yeah. you know. <laughs> it, you know, it's funny because I did the same exact thing on that day, or maybe it was a day later after he announced it, and then the message was literally like, "As I told Tristan, I'm a free agent now." So, yeah, I mean, we'll have him back on the podcast. Yeah, we'll have him, we'll back. Have him back on the we'll podcast. We'll have him back in some some capacity. Yeah. I, I I I really like how he breaks down things, and uh, he really likes uh, he really likes to say the reality is, but, <laughs> but he he is a very um, he, lo- I mean, he, it's, he it's, looks at the realistic sides, which kind is, of, uh, you know, it, it's kind of need that. It's kind of like me and you and even sometimes Julian McKenzie, um, who actually co-hosts the Scrum podcast along with uh, with yourself, Tristan. But it, we, we always have the tendency to say um, uh, that being said, that being said, yeah, yeah, yeah. we do. Say I almost blanked on it. Thank you for reminding me that being said. Um, but yeah, well, that being said, <laughs> let's throw it to George Sanchez. And welcome back to the Third Kid Podcast, episode six with Alex and Tristan. And we have on the line, it's been a while that we didn't talk to him. Uh, he was a friend of the show on the old show, Pressbox Hattrick. Uh, we had him on to talk about the Euros uh, on the Third Kit when it was back in the day in season one. Uh, but now a lot of changes. Um, now former head coach of the Concordia Stingers women's soccer team and much, much more. We're going to talk about that right now. George Sanchez. How you doing, George? I'm doing great. It's uh, back. great to be back on uh, on a podcast with you guys. It, we're so glad to have you back. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I mean, like people say, when we, uh, when we don't talk uh, for a while, I guess the first question is, how have you been doing, George? Been doing uh, quite well, enjoying my uh, first fall in 17 years, not coaching the Stingers, and enjoying life after 27 years of coaching overall. So it's it's both weird not being on the soccer field, but it's also exciting to see what the what the next chapter is going to bring. Uh, so um, before we start uh, talking about. Um, yourself and the transition and the big thing that happened recently for you. Uh, I kind of wanted to talk about the thing that's the most pressing, at least in the news recently. It's Rian Wilkinson. I mean, she's from here. Uh, she's uh, one. She was for a long time one of the only Montrealers on the Canadian national team, and now uh, two uh, two big big things happened uh, to her uh, very recently. One, she is in Uruguay. She got the job for the Canadian U17 national team, and then she got hired as the head coach of the uh, Vancouver Whitecaps Rex program. Um, I mean, since you've been coaching, you were coaching Rian back in the day. You've had her. Um, I mean, you you posted on Twitter a couple of days ago. Uh, an article about how she came to one of your uh, trainings when you were coaching the the, the Stingers, and uh, uh, how it meant to to the team. And so, um, I was thinking, what were your initial thoughts when you saw all of this uh, unfold? Um, what were your thoughts? Uh, I'm very happy for her. I'm very proud of her. Obviously, you know, when, when you meet someone at 14, 15 years old, and and you sort of get to follow them from that point through their playing career. You know, they uh, with the Quebec teams, with the university, with the national program, uh, having brought her to speak to the team not long after what was her final competition, the, the Rio Olympics in 2016. It, it's really great to see her giving back. I think she's the, the, the prototypical uh, type of person that we need to give back. Uh, 
hard worker, you know, works for everything she, she earned as a, as a national team player, a role model, uh, giving back to women's soccer, um, someone that the players, maybe the, the players have seen her play when they were young girls. Uh, it's not like, it's not like they can call her on anything because she's been there and done that. So I think it's fantastic news. I know uh, we were just talking about her off-air a little bit when we spoke to her in 2016. She wasn't sure if coaching was really what she wanted to do. I think this pretty much confirms it is. <laughs> I think it. she seems to be working in that direction. I mean, she's had brief stints where in 2014 she shadowed the under-20s as an assistant coach during the World Cup. Uh, she's been working, she worked with John Herdman post-retirement a little bit. But you've seen her get a bigger and bigger role. And with Beth Priestman going back to England, I think it was just a matter of time before she got one of the youth programs. Uh, did you expect uh, the the progression at least to a head coaching position? I know uh, you kind of always start with uh, with the younger squads, but did you expect her to get uh, to a head coaching position within the national team as early as uh, as as it is? I mean, she's already doing a, a head coaching position. If I'm really honest, at it many times, it's no secret. Of all the different players I coached through the years with the, the club level and at the provincial level, I wouldn't have imagined her to be someone who would make the national team, let alone have the longevity she had, let alone win two bronze medals, let alone play 170 times for Canada. So I stopped being surprised when it comes to Reed Wilkinson. I mean, I think her biggest strength is her determination and her perseverance. And John Herdman, in an interview I don't know, three and a half, four years ago, that I can see her one day becoming the head coach. I think he believed it more than she did at the time. Um, I think she's always been known as she got an, as she became an older player with the group. She was sort of known as a team conscience. She was the one who kept John Herdman on his toes, who called him on stuff, who relayed information. Even though she wasn't the captain of the team per se, she was always sort of the the, the person behind the person. And I, I think it's timing. Sometimes she's in the right place at the right time. If, if the, the previous incumbent coach didn't return to England, maybe the job doesn't open up for her, but she was there. She had worked with some of these younger players and I think it's great. I mean, it's your first gig as a head coach being at the world cup is pretty cool. And, um, you know, you just mentioned it being that you've known Rian since, uh, she was just a teenager and, and having, you know, kept in touch with her for all these years, I guess, um, before she got into coaching, um, I guess, have you kept in touch with her in regards to that? Has there been any advice from you um, to her? Uh, not really. I mean, we, 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 you know, message every so often, and but it's most like, you know, it's mostly myself giving her congratulations. I think she's very well surrounded. Her, her father was very involved with what became, uh, she, you know, her best friends are Karina LeBlanc. Christine St. Clair, Diana Matheson. So I think she's well surrounded in her entourage. I don't think she she needs the advice of a former coach necessarily. I think you're seeing a, that core group of players taking on roles in women's the women's game, whether in coaching, whether in administration. I mean, Karina LeBlanc's working with CONCACAF region in, turn, in terms of being uh, heading up the women's soccer side. So I think when Christine and, and Diana Matheson, when they receive the playing days, I think we're going to see them get into some sort of role also. So I think it's just the natural progression of things of this group of dominant female players that have represented Canada for so long. Uh, if if I can go and talk about the uh, U17 team proper, um, I'm going to date the show. We're recording, and the uh, the Canadian team has only played two 
of the of the games in their group stage. Uh, by the time this comes up, probably the team will have played three games. Uh, I guess it'll depend on how <laughs> how fast I edit all of this. But uh, um, you've seen both the games. Uh, I know it's always uh, it's always kind of um, treacherous and uh, kind of mean to like critique a team with only. Uh, teens that are younger than 17 years old but what were your impressions on the uh the u uh, the u.s the u17 uh canadian team as of yet i i'd say the simplest thing there was definitely progression from first game to the second game i thought they were they were in some ways dominant in the first game but were missing a little bit of of finish missing a little bit of that that little extra something in the in the last third Um, there was a lot of sloppy mistakes, which I can probably chalk up to nerves. Um, you look at their center back. I think she, I, I, the name escapes me, but they have one of the center backs is 15 years old. Uh, yeah. And the composure, the composure with which she plays the ball. And, and I think it's a sign of where women's soccer has come to. You know, 25, 30 years ago, the teams that did well in the women's game were the ones who were physically dominant. It was no, there's no technical or technical part of the game. It was just, you know, being stronger, faster, bigger. Now you're seeing the, the ease with which they play the ball around, the, the ability to hit balls over distance, how much ground they cover. Um, I find it quite impressive. I mean, they're 17 years old or younger in some cases, and to see some of the things they're, they're executing on the soccer field is pretty impressive. As someone who's coached at that age group, granted not at the national level, but seeing the things they can do with the ball, seeing their composure in tough moments, seeing some of the things that the decision-making, it's pretty impressive. And I, You know, it's funny how quick things change. Uh, during the game on Saturday, their second game, people were talking about, you know, what do you do the third game? Are you happy to be qualified for the quarterfinals and rest certain players? Or do you go out and try and beat Spain to win the group? Well, Spain went out and laid a kind of a stinker against Colombia. And yeah. Canada now finds them, now find themselves in first place. And they only need a tie. Um, knowing that they're playing against what I think is potentially the toughest group when they cross over in the next round, They may want to control their destiny. They may want to go out and try and beat Spain. Uh, and let's be honest, Spain on the women's side has progressed enormously in the last five or six years. Um, the U-17 team is ranked fourth in the world at the age group. So they're going up against a top-quality team, and I think it's a good measure. And knowing Rian as I do, the best want to beat the best. Um, I don't see Rian sort of trying to manage the result that, you know, the plan the second round. I see her going out to win and doing what's best. And it. it It makes for a great game tomorrow. Uh, there's obviously uh, the topic of... I mean, we can't talk about the U-17s without talking about Jordan Hytema. Uh, she's obviously a superstar in the making. And, uh, you know, she's the phenom from Chilliwack, BC. Uh, but I was watching the game, uh, the first game, uh, the Columbia game on uh, RDS, actually. Uh, the French version of TSN for our listeners in the in the western parts of Canada or in the English Canada, but um, I was kind of surprised to see, at least in the in the first half analysis, uh, the amount of criticism that the people on the panel on RDS were giving towards Jordan Hytema, um, mainly I guess because uh, she was. Uh, on the senior team, she was on the the U20 team. Now she's on the U17 team, uh, and she has all of that experience. But she's still a very young player. Do you think it's a bit unfair to like give all of that pressure on Jordan Hytema, um, even though she is the 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 flat out star of that team? 
it's all about perspective. Um, different roles bring out different characteristics in people. You know, it's one thing to be a young, up-and-coming 16, 17-year-old surrounded by vets where there's no expectation of you. So she gets in with 15, 20 minutes left in a senior game against the Costa Rica or maybe a lesser-ranked team and goes out and scores a goal and people start anointing her the next Christine St. Clair. It's very different when you're wearing the armband, when you're, when you're known to be the star of a group and you're expected to perform at a high level and lead your teammates around you. It's a different kind of pressure, and you mentioned it. She is only 17. You know, she's playing in a World Cup. So sometimes expectations are hard to carry when, when they're, I don't want to say unrealistic, but she's got a bright future ahead of her. Let's not, let's not burn any bridges. Let's not, you know, skip any steps. She scored two goals in two games. She got the unfortunate red card, which, you know, opinions are, are different about whether it was deserved or not. Um, but I think at that level, uh, when Rian mentioned it, it's about, it's a learning experience for these athletes. And, and in her case, it's about learning to be the best. It's learning how to play with that pressure. We've seen Christine St. Clair step on the world stage pretty much at the same age that Jordan did, and she stood out from day one. But she was surrounded by other strong character players. So I think that, you know, Christine St. Clair was never expected to be the captain of a U-17 team at 17 because those youth programs weren't as developed back then. So it's normal, and the reality is these are two goals in two games. Like, what more would we expect her to do? And uh, George, I actually just wanted to bring in uh, the PLSQ or the women's PLSQ more specifically, and uh, it's kind of, and I guess it's connection to the U17 national team. Uh, three actually Griffins players who will be on the team next year are representing Team Canada, and also a player that you recruited on Concordia last year or two years ago, if I'm not mistaken, Claudia Asselet plays for Blainville in the league. Uh, I guess how significant has the women's PLSQ been in the last year? Uh, in regards to the national team? I don't know. I, I think it looks, it's a banner league. I don't think you've expanded the quality of the field yet. I don't think you've made the, the pie any bigger in terms of the talent pool in Quebec because the reality is all you basically did is take the better LACQ players and a couple of youth players and bring them in a senior league. So they got a little more exposure. They maybe got a little more structure. But you didn't inc- improve the talent. If if the player was good playing Liga at U17, she's going to be good playing PLSEQ senior with better players. I think it's a good experiment. I think we have to see what's going to happen over the next two or three years. Hopefully, I believe Fabros is putting a women's team in next year. I think Pierrefonds has applied to have a team by 2020. You know, if the league gets a little stronger and maybe crosses over against League One um, and the older players stay, then I think it could get interesting. But I don't think the PLSQ itself has made these players ready for the national program. I think it's all the years of training, whether it's with the national center, with the provincial teams, with their clubs that have gotten to this point. Because after all, they still are 17. It's interesting. You you mentioned Ligue 1 Ontario. um, And one of the biggest news from last week was that Ligue 1 Ontario was purchased by the Canadian Premier League. like it, so, at first everybody was talking about the men's side, but there's also the women's side to the PLSQ, uh, to the PLSQ, to the to League One Ontario that uh, went from the Ontario so- Soccer Association to a private league um, operating. And um, I was wondering what were uh, I mean? I, everybody was kind of reacting to that news, at least in Canada. Um, 
I, I'm wondering, both on the men's and women's side, um, how did you react to that news? Um, it's too early to tell. I think you almost have to try and find out what are the motivations for the uh, Can Premier League for buying. Is it to create a feeder system where um, they're going to be pulling players? You know, is it you're creating a promotion relegation or are you creating a feeder system of farm teams? Or, um, But it's an entity that was a... a a Canada-wide league owns a league in one province. You know, why League One versus the BC Premier League or the Vancouver, I'm uh, sorry, the Maritimes have a fairly important Premier League. So is it to control the development? Is it to use it as an outlet for players who maybe aren't quite good enough to play on the Premier League teams and then you can send them down? It'll be interesting to see how it develops. I think they bought the women's and the, and the men's side because it was an entity that went as one. Is it going to help the women's side? The reality is there's still not going to be an outlet for the better players of League One or PLCQ to play at a, a national team or a pro league in Canada for the foreseeable future. So I don't think it's going to benefit the women's side that much. It could benefit the men's side. I'm more excited about the fact that the uh, the Can PL uh, decided to do a draft with sport players. I think that for me was a more important news in terms of soccer development in Canada. It's interesting because um, uh, I we were talking about this last week, and for the listeners, uh, we break down all of the news that happened in the Can PL. So if you want to check that out, uh, please go and uh, just it's one episode back. But we were talking about um, how it because it, I referred to uh, a the very first statement that the owner of Forge FC in Hamilton, who owns the uh, the Tiger Cats, he was one of the first, um, I guess, the, the first cities that were like committing to the Premier, the, the Canadian Premier League. And in like the second line or the third line of his statement, he was saying that he's not stopping to just having a men's pro team. He also wants a women's team as well. He doesn't know what, uh, up until when, but... Uh, that in the future they want to have that. So um, I'm kind of wondering, like, do you, like do you kind of foresee uh, the press play at the professional level within the country? Um, there's been an attempt to have a professional domestic league in Canada on the men's side. There hasn't really been one on the women's side. The problem historically has always been that Canada is an east-west country. Travel is very, very tough. You know, if you have a team based in Vancouver and you're going to play out in Halifax, the travel costs are going to be enormous. If you're not getting generating revenues, are you setting up your league to be a loss leader and basically accept that you're going to lose money year after year? And if you're losing money on the men's side, where there's going to be some revenue, how much are you going to lose on the women's side? So it'd be great if he does it. Um, I think, you know, I still think the easiest solution would be for our three MLS teams to at least one of them, to get a, a franchise in the NWSL if you want to have a pro league or a pro team for women players. But I think anything that enhances the game on the men's side and the women's side is a positive. That being said, the fact that we have a, this can P, a Premier League and we don't have a franchise in Quebec, for me, is it's putting our province a step behind everybody else. Uh, George, I'm just going to actually quickly switch subjects. Uh, we, we brought up U Sports and, uh, and university soccer, you know, something that you were heavily involved in for the last 16 to 17 years. Um, 
I just want to bring up, you know, obviously you mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, you're kind of getting used to uh, not being uh, a coach anymore, I guess. Uh, how has, you know, um, this fall been in, in, in you know, you know, having been retired and, and not coaching um, for the first time in, in over a, almost a decade, I think? Um, I, I wanted to see, I only attended one game during the, the fall season of the Stingers. I actually went to the U Sport Nationals in Ottawa, partly to watch the, the, the top level, but, but also to catch up with peers and friends from other universities across Canada that I was in the habit of getting together with at U Sport Nationals every year. But I, I really wanted to take a step back. You know, you can't say I'm retiring and walking away from the game if you're going to every game every week. So I had to get used to being completely uninvolved. Um, I have to say, I can't say I've missed it. I can't say that I wish I was still coaching. I mean, there's things about it that you miss and there's things about it that you don't, like anything else when you when you turn the page. Um, I think it's going to take a little longer for me to really understand and feel the full impact of not being coaching because, you know, as my wife said, you know, our, our marriage has paralleled my coaching career. You know, I, we've been married for 27 years and I was coaching pretty much full-time, even though it was a part-time role, for 27 years. So it's the first time in almost three decades that I'm not involved with soccer at any level. So it's been interesting. I mean, it, it is a void that you have to fill with something else, and I've been able to, luckily. But, you know, if we have the same discussion next year, my answer might be a little different because maybe the the I'll either be bored by not coaching or I'll be confirm that I don't want to coach again. I mean, I never say never, but I, I don't see myself coming in a fairly high active role in coaching. I still like to talk about the sport. I still like to help young coaches. I don't see myself taking on a heavy coaching role any anytime soon. And uh, prior to leaving the Stingers, uh, I guess, what was that decision process like, I guess, over the summertime? Um, and along with the you know discussion with uh, the now athletics director, Darcy Ryan? Um. It was, you know, without getting into too much detail, it was, it was something that over the last couple of years I had sort of started to think about what was next. I mean, when I started in 2002 at Concordia, I saw it as something I would do for five years. So I already exceeded that, you know, far exceeded that, that initial plan. So when you started getting into year 14, 15, 16, I already sort of started seeing the end approaching. Um, and with a new athletic director, with a new associate director, um, knowing that you know I had maybe a year left to go, you started talking about potential transitions, and I've said it a few times to people who've asked me. I sort of looked at it the analogy of the band-aid. You know, do you pull it off quickly or do you pull it off slowly? And the decision we came to that maybe it was time to pull it off quickly and and give a new coach to come in with a new athletic director with a with his vision or her vision, you know, depending on who they would have hired at the time, and and start fresh. Um, so. It wasn't easy. I mean, you're, you're turning your back on something that's been a big part of your life for so long, but knowing it was just a matter of when. So, you know, the timetable maybe got moved up a little quicker than I initially thought, but once the decision was made, I didn't look back. It was, okay, it's done, time to go forward. And uh, you mentioned, uh, you, you had just mentioned previously, uh, you know, whoever the new coach is that would come in for the team. And, you know, obviously before the season started, there was the decision made about, uh, making Greg Sutton the master coach, so being the both men's coach and women's coach, was that a decision process that you were involved in? No, nope. um, it was 
part of the transition plan was really about me not being involved in, in the job search or you know, I gave my recommendations in terms of what the program needed, not just in the coaching, but overall. Um, but specifically once the decision was made to, to part ways, um, Darcy and, and the people around him had to make a decision that they felt was best moving forward. Um, so, you know, I don't know who applied. I don't know who was interviewed. I don't know what the thought process went into the decision. I, I'm assumed it was a well thought out decision and, and done for, you know, I think any decision is always made based on the information available. And for whatever reason, they felt that was the best uh, structure to go forward. And I wish them best of luck. And um, I know in, in regards to this master coach, I don't want to speak for Tristan, but for myself, I, I, I have, you know, I have my own opinions on it, but I guess, um, what did, what did you think of that hire? Was that something, uh, do you think that was a bold move from Concordia? Anytime you do something for the first time, it's a bold move. Um, it's not, Concordia is not the first school to try it. Um, it was done previously at a few other schools. Uh, people moved away from it. It's sort of coming back. And there's all different versions. Sometimes you have a master coach who acts more like a technical director overseeing the two programs and then hires an, uh, an associate coach for each program. Sometimes you have someone who's more of an administrator overseeing the two programs. Um, there's a lot of different versions of master coach, you know. Um, I have mixed, mixed opinions. I think I've seen it work. I mean, York had a run over a few years where Paul James did a great job with both the men's and women's programs. Unfortunately, both programs didn't seem to succeed at the same time. Um, I don't know if it's because his energies were split or because once one started doing well, he focused his energies on that one. Um, and some schools that tried it, it didn't work. Um, sometimes it's because of individuals. It's not just about naming someone a master coach. It's, you know, who, do, who does this person bring on his staff, his or her staff? Well, who does they surround themselves with? Are the resources there to support the coach? There's a lot of things that go into any decision. And it's a it can be a great short short term solution and structure. I haven't seen a university where it was and where it lasted longer than five or six years. So I guess time will tell if if Concordia's uh, decision will pay off or not. And I guess what what have your thoughts been on the uh, both I guess both the men's and women's side on on their season this past fall? Like I said, I tried not to follow it too closely for obvious reasons. Um, you know, I would look up scores and I think, I don't know. I'd rather not comment on specifically out of respect for, for Greg and the people that I've worked with previously there. Uh, you know, it's easy to second guess when you're not there and you're not seeing them and pick things apart. I think it was a transition year because I think if nothing else, just the timing that everything happened makes it tough. So, I, mean, I don't think it's any different than what the football program saw with Brad Collison coming in. When he was hired, everybody said what a great hire he was for the football program, but he had literally a month and a half to get ready. That's tough. That's tough in any sport at the university level. So you may have the right person, just the timing doesn't quite work out for year one, and it becomes a transition. So I think this year it was a. I don't want to say a throwaway because I don't. I think university careers for the athletes are too short for one season to be a throwaway. But I think I think there was going to be growing pain. Um, whether I was considered a good coach or a bad coach when you replace someone who's been there for 16 years and had a certain mindset and still a majority of the players that I had last year are still there, there's going to be an adjustment period. It's normal. 
So uh, to, to, to end this, actually, uh, we wanted to talk about the, the, the big thing that happened recently for you is uh, your nomination to the uh, Lac Saint-Louis uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, Lac Saint-Louis, for those of you who don't know Montreal, is uh, kind of the westernmost part of, uh, of Montreal. It's uh, towards the west of the island. Um, uh, so how did, uh, how did this happen? Uh, how did you react? Uh, did you get, uh, were you surprised? Uh, how did it go? Uh, very surprised. Um, you know, I, the announcement to part ways was done in June and sort of walk away from the game thinking that's it. And I had heard some rumblings that my name was circulating that maybe put forward to either the Quebec soccer hall of fame or the Lac St. Louis hall of fame and kind of laugh it off. It's just people talking. Um, and in mid, I believe it was mid October, all of a sudden I got an email from Lakeshore Soccer Club saying, congratulations, uh, we have submitted your name to the Lac-Saint Louis Hall of Fame for induction and it's been approved at the regional level. Um, it was a bit of a surprise because I hadn't worked with the club level for probably 20 years, 21 years. So I'd really been away from working anything to do with the community level of soccer. So for someone to sort of remember uh, where you know, where my roots started with Lakeshore is, is pretty uh, it's pretty rewarding. It's, I think it's a recognition over a job well done for a, you know an extended period of time. And as I joked at some point, uh, it also makes you feel old because you know you only <laughs> think old people going to Hall of Fames. But it was nice. I mean, uh, the banquet took place this past Friday, and you know it was nice to run into people that I hadn't seen in quite a while, or people that I worked with many years ago, like club administrators. Um, and it was a nice moment. It's, uh, you, we've had a lot of discussions. He, uh, you know, I, I was never the one to coach for personal recognition for me. It was always about the athlete, but it is nice to be recognized individually for your, for your efforts. It kind of validates that maybe you did things right over the, over the long haul. Uh, before we wrap it up, I, I just, you know, I just want to ask in a hypothetical situation where I am the owner of the newest expansion PLSQ team, uh, and I call you for for to test your interest for a coaching position. Do you answer the call? Well, I answer the call, <laughs> and then my wife will t- and then my wife will tell me to hang up the phone. But uh, <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but uh, at the Lac Saint Louis Gal on on Friday, uh, a few people from different clubs that knew me or knew of me or had heard of me or maybe I'd worked with their father or who knows would approach and say, so, you know, the question's always kind of, so what are you doing with yourself? You know, are you still coaching at any level? And you could sort of jokingly see my wife and say, nope, I got him back now after all this time. He's never coaching again. Um, in life, you can never say never. You know, if you ask me today, am I going to coach again? I'd say no. But, you know, if the Montreal Impact created an NWSL franchise and wanted me to coach, it'd be pretty hard to say no. <laughs> because it's something different. I don't think I'll go back to coaching at the basic club level. Um, it'd have to be something very different to anything I've already done. Um, it'd have to be something that I believe in, a project that I believe in. It'd have to be something that I have um, a lot of latitude in terms of decision-making. I don't think I could report to anybody when it comes to soccer. For 16 years, I ran the women's program. You don't want to be working for someone. So, I don't see myself active coaching, but I, I see myself maybe being involved, you know, giving clinics. I still give some talks every so often on, on women's soccer and, and helping females get into coaching and things like that. I see myself more angling towards that area in the game than actively coaching a team. 
George, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the show after months of uh, of uh, we haven't uh, spoken to you on the record. Um, I mean, again, uh, happy retirement again, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for uh, think, reaching out and including me in talking soccer. I'd always finish by saying anytime it's about talking soccer and female soccer, I'm always interested. And we're back here on episode six of the Third Kid Podcast. Uh, Tristan, Alex, I'm sorry uh, for the uh, the little beeps. Uh, I don't know if you were listening on your phone. Maybe you checked your phone. Uh, I forgot to put the do not uh, disturb thing on my phone. So uh, I apologize for that. Uh, those were the little beeps. You're a very popular person, Tristan. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I try. Um, but good interview. Yeah. Good I re- interview. Yeah. What I like about uh, Sanchez is that, you know, sometimes, you know, when you get those interviews and, you, you know, you ask the questions and then the answers are the basic answers to the questions. You know what I mean? He, does, he doesn't he does just say the basic yeah, answer. Yeah, I like that he he flushes things out and he, he puts in as much detail as possible. And it, 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 it happens sometimes where it's like you think he's done, you go to ask another question and he, he kind of continues on, which is great. Um, but always good. Always good to, to talk soccer with uh with sanchez yeah and um i don't know like i i've been telling you that off air that last question i don't know i've been playing a lot of football manager recently (laughs) and uh it's been like trotting in my mind i don't have the money but if we want to make um if we want to make a third kit plsq side i don't know i've been like i one of my dreams in life is to own a soccer team uh, more specifically a women's soccer team because I think they're not as much around and it's a fact they're not as much around here um, but it would be just so cool yeah. <laughs> to own a team but it's fun uh, it's, it's funny that you even you mentioned that question uh, to him the last one about you know maybe getting back into the game because I was really hesitant on on uh, on asking it because it seemed that he was so adamant throughout the podcast that you know he does not want to be back into it yet at least but yeah, but you know, I, I, you never yeah, know in I mean, passing. I'd be curious to see what he, I mean, he said maybe a year from now his answer will be different. But yeah, I'd be curious maybe 12 months from now, um, you know, what his, what his thoughts are on returning. Maybe not necessarily to coaching, but um, maybe something in a different role, maybe a technical director role. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm very curious to what the next year brings uh, for George Sanchez. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really interested as that uh, to that as well. Um, but let's start uh, in. Let's start with our second segment, which um, is pretty much going to look at. It's pretty much going to be me throwing you topics and us kind of. Do you mind? Reacting. Do you mind if I throw you a topic right before? Okay, go. Because it, 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 yeah, no, it actually has to do with the with the with the segment we did with Sanchez, and it's something I, I kind of want to talk about on the podcast because we talk about it a lot off the podcast, but um, I think it needs to be. On the record, we do mention the master coach. Um, first season for the Concordia Stingers soccer program where they had uh, Greg Sutton, who is a former impact goalkeeper, as well as uh, Toronto FC and New, New York Red Bulls. And New York Red Bulls as well. Um, so a very known soccer figure in Montreal. Um, the first, So this was his first season coaching both the men and women's side where he was previously just the men's coach. Um what was what what what's your thoughts on, on the master coach? What what do you think, Tristan? And and then I'll I guess I'll I'll get into it a bit. Well, first off, I'll uh, I'll I'll mention that I I do not well I wasn't working at the Link this year, uh, the Link the Link magazine, the Link online newspaper. 
this is usually where you find the news about. Uh, and I'll give a shout out to Elias Kurgariadis. Yes, or Elias. Yeah. Elias actually is Elias. Uh, Elias. Well, Ilya, however it, you want to say it. it it's funny because I was actually talking about it with him, and he was saying Elias was oh, kind of yeah. like the name. But so yeah. I, I tend to ask people. Anyways, shout out to him. Uh, if you're listening, you're doing a great job. Uh, and this is kind of where I kind of got my news on, mm -hmm. on in terms of uh, I didn't I wasn't there on the forefront. Uh, so I can't form like a thorough opinion of like what I've seen because I've only kind of just read uh, what was been going down. Now, if you ask me, do you um, do you do do you like it? I don't like it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that um, a single a single person uh, can take all of the responsibilities and like i'm talking about because it's u sports soccer right it's college soccer it's college ball like there's going to be recruitment there's going to be uh trips there's going to be you know games the you know managing the students the students and the, the the athletes part of the uh the athletes i mean it's a lot of job it's yeah. a lot i mean it, it makes me wonder because uh george even mentioned that you know he wonders who kind of like applied for the job, who'd they interview, you, you know. And I feel like when I heard that Sutton was getting this job, and I remember over the summertime, this was something that we were kind of racking our heads over, saying, you know, like, who's the next coach? Who's going to be a new coach? And then I think we were a little bit underwhelmed to hear that Sutton will be in charge of both teams. I, I yeah, I'm going to, I'm definitely, I definitely share the same opinion as you, Tristan. I don't know if it's something that, really worked this season and you even saw it on paper with with the with both teams you know the men's team once again uh were underwhelming the women's team similar to last year where they had games where they were really solid and then there's games that they were convincing when they won um still a talented side but there's something there but always kind of drop second half of the season and like i said the men's team is just something that they've been a rather underwhelming team but Nothing, it, it didn't really impress the athletics director at um, at Concordia. Uh, it just didn't really... I don't know. Uh, I, I While you were talking, I was doing a tiny bit of research because I want to get... And uh, I, it's something that we were talking about a lot off air uh, of like who could have been the head coach if you were going to hire in-house because this feels like an in-house, let's save some money, at least in my mind. And we never really got um, a full word in terms of why did Greg Sutton get that master coach uh, license on him? Why did he get that tab? It wasn't like he was doing very, very well with the men's team to say like, okay, he has a lot of, a lot of success, so let's give him... Um, I, but in my, in my mind, when we were asking like, okay, well, in-house... Um, uh, George brought in, uh, George Sanchez brought in, um, last national former, a youth Canadian youth international, uh, has played for, uh, University of Chelsea. It was kind of like bringing her, she was an assistant coach. And in my mind, I was like, well, why not Andréane Gagné? Why not her? She could, uh, she, she, you know, bringing more women in, in positions of power, at least in, in the sporting side, in soccer. Um, to me, that was kind of like a, well, not necessarily a home run, but, uh, you know, bringing in someone that can learn throughout because I think we both agree that right now the women's soccer program is is um, always like it, it's looking to develop. And so 
having a coach that can develop under that team, like they kind of mutually help each other. And now I'm looking at the uh, at the, the 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 head coach, uh, the not the the coaches page, the staff page for women's soccer, and she's not even there. So uh, I don't know. Maybe she left yeah. when 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 Sanchez left too. I don't know. I I would have been a good hire. Yeah, and I think that. Um, given that you know she she used to play for a potential coach that the players could have you know related to as well, because some you know. of the players were actually playing with her. Yeah, in uh, in the the LSEQ, which which uh, Sanchez was talking about LSEQ, the Ligue Soccer Elite du Québec, which used to be the highest level of uh, I guess amateur soccer. It was, or like the, it was like the yeah, it was like the AAA league or the AA league that a lot of uh, well that the teams would play in that's below PLSQ essentially. Yeah, so I don't know. I think I, I still think, like, like you said, it's probably we we might see a new head coach in the next two to five years. Yeah, I don't think it's a long term thing, and I don't know. I I I'm not a fan of that. I'll be honest. I, yeah, and I'm 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 not a fan of that either it, it puts a lot on on Sutton's plate and you know I guess and and props to him for handling you know two whole squads for for a whole season but um it did not really make a difference because if you look over the past years with the men's and women's side you know having him as master coach didn't really make much of a difference in my opinion but it looks as though that the women's team is still something that is like I said before, they're they're there, but there's still that something missing. And it looked like, you know, they, they had two players who had five goals each with uh, Sarah Humes, who's been uh, who's been a stellar player for the Concordia Stingers for quite uh, for the last two or three seasons now. And Claudia Asselin, who was who had a breakout year actually with the Stingers. You know, she was listed as a defender at first, but I think she seems to be not much of an issue. Maybe it's something on the defensive side. Maybe. There's something else that's lacking to change on that team. So, if they are going to make a new hire, does Sutton stick with the team? Is just not. There's some. There's just something there that's not pushing forward, and it's just the same thing every season. Where it's, yeah, we got a good squad. Yeah, we want to make the playoffs, but. I don't know. know I there's no end product. I've heard that. I've I've heard through the grapevines that at least on the women's side, there's going to be heavy recruitment. A lot of players are going to be coming in, uh, at least in in the next, um, the next one to two yeah. years uh, on the short term. So is that going to to occupy a lot of uh, uh, Greg Sutton and and the recruitment team at least uh, led by Greg Sutton? Hopefully, hopefully yes. Hopefully he he's able to build something that potentially either him or someone new can. Um, play with or, yeah. or or just you know deal with um but uh yeah at least at least for now um a lot of question marks but yeah. i but, think it was a good experiment yeah. maybe but i guess we'll see what the next few months bring um that being said uh what else do we have on the docket so on the docket let's um let's transition into men's soccer uh and I, I do want to talk a bit about MLS for a uh, for a short for a short amount of time. Um, what a big news coming out of Montreal! 
um, their vice president, Richard Legendre, has announced that he would retire at the end of the calendar year on, tw- on the uh, de- December 21st to be exist on the job, like a decade on the job. He uh, was brought in when the MP and he stuck on for all of it until the, the MLS, one of the expansion franchise in MLS, and through, um, he was there. If you have, a, you, a lot of people have a lot of criticism on at the impact plus era having a, uh, an easy trigger for their coach, for, for, for their coaches. Um, a lot of criticisms that you may have for the front office, but Richard Legendre has been unanimously liked by everyone. I, I, when, when the news dropped on Twitter, most of the news, most of the reactions were positive of him, uh, saying that he was a good leader, um, that he was uh, unanimously liked by everyone, that he was a that he was a very nice man, just like in and around the club. Um, I think it's a big loss. I think there's a there's definitely something there, um, and that's the end of my uh, I guess uh, saying kind. My kind of concern uh, in the press release. Uh, Richard Lejean was saying that it was something that he was kind of um, thinking about other things. Um, that he's was he's been thinking about that for a good year. Lejeune, uh we're saying he's the VP, but his actual title, vice president of uh, this and that and that and that and this and that, uh, one that you that is unanimously liked, guide the. Dida's successor. Okay. So as of Tuesday, there isn't a successor that's been named for a tide. And maybe that's a thing. And maybe there is. But it would have been cool to... or Yeah, there, and there's been a lot of shifts with the impact on the offseason. You know, not only on the management level, but also on um, on a player's perspective as well. Um, you know, there's been... In the front office. And, um, Adam Braz. Adam Braz is, is now is, gone. Will, will be he, gone. He was replaced by... Like his name is a bit complicated. His first name is Vasily, <laughs> but uh, his uh, his last name there um, Perez. It would be great. But uh, 29 years old, and he is a uh, he's a numbers guy. Which you wanna? Yeah. So it's Vasily Kramanzidis. Yeah, 29 years old, who was in the San Jose earthquake system um, from Montreal. I think it's such a great hire because to me this makes me think of uh of Montreal getting their Tim Bezbachenko. Uh I think everybody by now who knows who Tim Bezbachenko is, he is the guy that negotiated all of those deals at Toronto FC and make sh- made sure that Toronto was was under the, the the knowledge of the salary cap. Um what what a deep what a DP deal is, what a TAM deal, what a what a, how how to use GAM, how to use TAM to me, at this point, if you're a team that wants to be um, um, money conscious, you need to have one of those. You need to have one of those guys. And at a young age, the guys from Montreal, I think it's a home run. Yeah, and in, in regards to that, um, uh, to having a money conscious, you know, that's something that we always kind of talk about when it comes to um, players on the impact that could be let go to leave some cap space. Um, so yeah, it definitely looks like it's going to be a hire that has a lot of advantage for the impact. And it seems that, um, on an administrative level and I think overall, overall within the club, um, it looks like there's a bit of a renaissance maybe going on uh, ever since Remy Gaud came. There's, there's been a lot of shuffles. 
Yeah, yeah. I, which I, which is good. I, I'm, I'm totally for it, and I think this is something that's been a long time coming. And if they do want to be an elite club within MLS, um, you know, they have to make these tough choices. And I'm, I'm glad to see that they're being made. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think you know we, we've did our post mortem. That's episode I think three or four. Uh, if you want to check that out, we spend kind of a bit of time talking about that. But uh, I've read a lot of postmortems uh, throughout in the last few weeks. And I definitely agree that this is a transition year and it can only really be, get better. Um, before we uh, transition, I, I do, there's a little tiny bit of MLS stuff that I want to talk about too um, with uh, how MLS is reportingly, reportedly, going to end their season earlier uh, in the future before the November trans- uh, the November international window that we just went through. I think it's a super cool idea. I think it would be great to just have the season done by November and then not having to focus on it uh, in December and then like having that huge break. I think that could be really, really cool. So that was just um, um, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit on that. Um, I know it's in November... But uh, can we talk a little bit about transfer rumors? Yes. Actually, b- before we get into transfer rumors, just one little thing that I-, I was just kind of like stumbled upon on my phone um, in regards... The Ballon d'Or is coming up. Yes. But along with the Ballon d'Or, there is the Golden Boy nominee. St. Clair for Ballon d'Or, guys. <laughs> uh, there is the Golden Boy nominee, which is given to the best young player of the year. They actually just announced the final five uh, finalists for the oh, Golden Boy. Hit me, Alex. No Kylian Mbappe. Wait, so is it so, the, is it the Ballon d'Or committee? So it's France Football, right? I be, yeah, I think I think the Golden Boy. Well, I'm assuming I'm assuming that um, Mbappe isn't in the young player because he is a nominee for the Ballon d'Or. But I think there could have been a case where he and and I remember reading this somewhere that he could have been the first player to possibly win both awards oh. because he still is in that age group so it's a little bit surprising i think in my mind he is the golden boy of the year he could have done it two years in a okay, row okay so so in that in but, that field but um the top five is pretty impressive uh i do have my own prediction on on, on who's gonna win it uh, i'll but, tell i'll tell you my uh, trent alexander arnold uh right back on liverpool fc in the in the premier league and justin clivert from roma matthias de Litt from ajax and vinicius J- it's been and, a league uh, that's that's been slowly coming back up. So I'm t- which I'm assuming is your pick. Yeah. And uh and Clivert. Uh, is that he was at the World Cup. Yeah. Played at the World Cup. Talent. He is mind-bogglingly good. But yeah, and I think um I and the season prior, you know, he was kind of in and out. He was that, you know, he he was the he was the account rolled around the 2017-18 season. Klein got injured, who was the only reliable right back at the club. They didn't really have anybody else. Uh, Joe Gomez often played back. But from the beginning of the season, all throughout, Trent Alexander-Arnold just, he's still in that spot. And like you said, he made it to a Champions League final. He got called up to the World Cup. A pretty memorable 12 months for him. I don't see why he wouldn't win it. But that said, you know, and along, and he's he's on the Holland, on the Netherlands national team. And he's with, uh, Virgil van Dijk at center back. And both of them just form such a fantastic partnership. It's a bit of a renaissance there in the Netherlands. Yeah, the Netherlands are on the come up. They are just a scary team to, to face. You know, they, they just recently actually, they beat France. 
uh, 2-0 down against Germany. They tied 2-2. Uh, they had previously beat Germany. So yeah, they're on they're on the come up again, and and Ronald Koeman is is doing a great job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so um, you want to you want to talk briefly transfer rumors? Yeah, there's I would, I would love to talk transfer. There's rumors. one that's very interesting. There's um, so it seems like it's in the it's it's being done, but it's still in the rumors department. Um, Zlatan might be already out of MLS, and it's been like what, like a year now? Well, it's it's a less lo- than a year. It's a loan deal, right? So I, so we we're not sure if it's a loan deal or a or a um, a, a pure transfer yet. But uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic might be going to a back to AC Milan um, in a deal that would make him potentially leave the LA Galaxy, not even a year after joining. Um. We know about Zlatan and, you know, newcomer of the year. Uh, I miraculously came back from that injury. Is that a good deal? And is um, is that like the final blow for the uh, galaxy that isn't the shadow of itself? Yeah, I mean, my speculation is that it's going to be a loan deal. I think he still wants to play, um, you know, football over the next six months before... Uh, MLS starts again so my speculation that it's a loan deal and given that the rumor is about uh, 2.2 million if I'm not mistaken it's a fairly low amount so I do think that it's that in itself kind of says that it's a short-term uh, contract and then he'll he'll join the galaxy again um, if it is a permanent deal then it's a huge loss to Los Angeles speaking of huge losses um, I feel like every single month there's a new rumor of Miguel Amiron leaving <laughs> Atlanta but the uh, the the speculations of him moving to Newcastle are uh, are bumping up again. Uh, now that Tata Martino is essentially leaving uh, Atlanta for most possibly Mexico, which huge huge thing for Mexico. Um, is it finally the the goodbye the the the, the swan song for uh, for Miguel Almiron? And is in your mind you're you're the Premier League guy? Is Newcastle the place for Almiron? I think I mean under Rafa, I think it's it, it'll be cool to see Rafa always. Um, you know he he's always had a good eye on on pretty decent players, and I think bringing in someone from MLS uh, to the Premier League it's a bold move, but at the same time Almiron has shown his quality. I think it's a good move, but it but Newcastle itself has been kind of Horrible. a kind of a failing project for a few years now, and it's. If they don't get relegated this year, they'll probably get relegated next year. They'll come back up and then survive relegation and then so on and so forth. It's like it seems like every second or third year the team is always uh, it, they're always bombing and then coming back up. And I feel like they've always been a prem team that had the potential to be you know amongst that top six or possibly top seven, but they've never really shown it. And it kind of makes me wonder if you know Rafa should even still be there. Um, and not not saying that he should get fired. I, I I think that you know he should look for a new challenge. Um, Almiron going, it'd be it'd be cool to see. It'd be cool to see how he fares against uh, you know in one of the top leagues in the world. And in the end, if he doesn't make an impact, he struggles a bit. In the end, it's still a learning curve, and he'll still come back as uh, as probably a better player than what he is already now. So it'll be a, it'll be an advantage to him is is this is this deal for a loan deal or is this for a permanent deal though no permanent oh for a permanent so deal so those are the rumors I, 
if it's for a permanent deal, if I'm Miguel Almiron, I'm staying in Atlanta. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I see, just I, I don't want to see a top talent go to I don't a so, really so, difficult league and then you know he so doesn't, hear me he doesn't out. shine. I, I can't see Miguel Almiron play in the championship. I don't think that's a yeah. cha- that, I don't think that's a league for 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 his style. I see, it would be a step down. For I him. would see him in Italy or in Spain. Yeah, I I think in those like they're it, it, they're, they're they're more technical leagues. Um, in in I mean Newcastle has always been pretty good with uh, with uh, Spanish players, players of of Latino descent. You know that that have been pretty good. I mean, Jonas comes to mind. Uh, so I, I could see why, uh, but yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I mean, and, and to talk about Rafa, um, the Celtic fan in me says, Hey, why don't you, you know, take the road a little North and, and go to Glasgow. Or if he really wants to coach Almiron, you know, Atlanta, does Atlanta want to wow, tap would him be- up? I think that could be, I think that's the next step in, in Rafa's career. He's, Ever since leaving Liverpool, uh, back in I would totally see him in Atlanta. Twenty, I think it, I think twenty eleven, uh, when he had left, and then Roy Hodgson for some reason was hired. Um, yeah, his post Liverpool career hasn't been the best. He went to Inter, and it was a really, uh, and that was a transfer that was um, kind of hyped up, you know, because he was, he was a top coach at that time, you know, in 2005, he had won the Champions League, he had been to another final in 2007, um, you know, all he was missing was that Prem title, but they were runners up, I think, once or twice, he had a pretty good CV, got fired from Inter, interim coach at, uh, at Chelsea, they won the Europa League, but ultimately, uh, you know, didn't get hired on a permanent basis, now he's at Newcastle, he brought them up from the championship, so it's kind of been a career that's been, you know, going on a downward spiral. People have kind of forgotten about Rafa and, and, you know, how good of a technician he can be as a coach. He has a very good technical mind. Um, you know, there was his, his, his Valencia team was one of the best at that point when he was coaching it. I think the next step, and if he wants to, I, I guess not necessarily revive his career, but if he wants another challenge away from the Premier League, away from Europe, I actually think MLS can make sense for him. He's a top co- and Tata Martino, you know, did the same thing. He was at Barcelona, might have not worked out for him. Uh, coached Argentina and then went to MLS and look at that impression that and he made. And what a project! And Atlanta huge is. project. He he's, you know, when he leaves, may, ten years from now, you know, we'll be talking about how much of a legend Tata Martino is for bringing that team up the way he did. And exp- and we, I mentioned this a lot, but whenever we talk about Atlanta, it. it always surprises me to see an expansion team in its you know its second year now and you know the, there's a possibility of them being in an MLS Cup final insane and i think rafa has a similar style to tata and i think you know i i that's a hire that would make sense but ultimately atlanta will have to dish out the cash for him but i think it's it's a move that would definitely be um definitely be a positive for them and another rumor that uh i kept for the end, because it's. I feel like you're gonna like that. It's it's coming out of left field, but I feel like you're you're gonna enjoy the name that I'm gonna drop. Uh, so Jonathan Osorio, the uh, the uh, Toronto FC midfielder, uh, uh, he was the Concacaf Champions League Golden Boot, uh, and one a quote one of the highest paid Canadians in the world. Um, from uh, from John Molinero of Sportsnet. 
uh, actually on earlier on Tuesday was uh, dropped that article um, saying that Independente Medellin, a club in Colombia, one of the top teams in Colombia that qualified for the Copa Libertadores, the South American Champions League, apparently is looking at a loan deal for the entire season in 2019 for Jonathan Osorio. Uh, and the reason why I, uh, I, I, say, I was saying that you're going to like that rumor, would you like to know who is the head coach of Independiente Medellin? Who is it? Octavio Zambrano. Oh, <laughs> no way. So that's what he's up to now. There you go. So um, Octavio Zambrano, by the way, was the guy that kind of revived Jonathan Osorio's international career, at least on the uh, on the Canadian uh, national team level, because Benito Floro didn't play him at all. And Octavio Zambrano brought him back, brought him back into the system, and uh, he is looking to, uh, to ask Toronto FC to loan him for Copa Libertadores because he doesn't think that his team is strong enough now, I know it's left field, but how amazing would it be to see Octavio Zambrano and, uh, and Jonathan Osorio back together? I mean, it's, it's still really cool that he's taking an interest in Canadian talent overall, right? Uh, that was something that he was really adamant on. Well, I mean, obviously, that's something you have to be really adamant on when you were the coach of the national team. But he was really adamant on kind of looking everywhere and looking at the young talent. And he, he really cared. He seemed like he genuinely cared about the national team at that point before he had, he had to leave. And it's good to see that he's keeping tabs and, and close ties with players that he's already coached. I think that'd be really cool. And it'd be cool to see Canadian talent continue to kind of step out of their comfort zone and, you know, move abroad. Um, so I guess overall, no, that's that's really interesting. And I think for Jonathan Osorio to, to link up with Zambrano again would be uh, would be a nice sight. Yeah, exactly. And I, that that's, that's only why I want to bring that rumor back up because... Because of Octavio Zambrano, we haven't talked about him yeah. for a little while. You know, he coached the national team for less than a year, and uh, it was a, it was quite the it was quite the thing. He brought he brought interest back for the Canadian national team, except for the yeah. diehards, obviously. Yeah, but for but, but no, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. He did bring an interest back to to the Canadian national team, and even at the last Gold Cup in which he coached, they were really impressive in the way that they were playing. They were playing a really free free flowing style of of soccer, and I remember watching it with a few friends. We were watching, um, you know, unfortunately we had to tune into the uh, the Canada-Jamaica game that they lost, but they were so good in that game. You know, it's unfortunate they lost that game because, you know, they, they could have actually, they could have they could have won it had they finished their chances. But overall, even when they were down, I think it ended 2-1 if not mistaken, they were still probably the better team. And that was because of the style that Zambrano brought. Um, so he did coach a really impressive Canada team and, um, and I think since then, you know, they've kind of built that up and, you know, they've, they've been impressing ever since. Absolutely. Uh, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the nation's league. We have a few minutes. Uh, it's going to be a long one. I mean, it feels like it always is a long one, but, uh, um, wanted, you wanted to talk about the nation's league. Uh, it, first off, do you even like the nation's league? They're glorified friendlies. Which is which is exactly what it's supposed to which be. Which is which, yeah. It, it's it's to bring an interest back to international soccer. You know, that's not the World Cup or that's not the European Championship, right? 
And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. it. It's cool to see that, you know, they're they're also taking it seriously and you're getting full strength lineups, but at the same time, it's just I don't know. Um I I still don't get the point of it. You know, it's like the winner gets a qualification, but you still there's relegation involved. It's still very complex to me and I, I still don't get it. I it's just fun to see competitive soccer at the international level during the year. Um but yeah, no, I'm it's I'm just mostly a fan of of club soccer when it comes to uh when it comes to the calendar year and and you know when international break hits I still get the same discontent as I always do because I just want to continue watching the Premier League or La Liga or Serie A, right? Um it's still kind of an odd system to me. Maybe it's just I I still have to kind of get used to to the whole format. But uh but yeah, it's for now, I guess it is the first year. Maybe they will make some tweaks to it, you know, if if they do decide to continue with it. But for now, it's all it is is is, is glorified friendlies. That's what they are. Did you want to talk about any of the results or? Um, the most impressive team has been the Netherlands, which is surprising. They the net. Well, I mean, the, we we talked. You talked a little bit about the Netherlands. To me, it's kind of a renaissance. Like they've been outside of any of the international football competitions in the past what four years yeah oh they've they've not been good <laughs> they they've really not been. i think ever since the uh 2010 F- world cup where they were in the final after that they've been even in the 2014 world cup they they had an aging team the, you know they they got some good results but not the team that they were in 2008 or 2010 yeah, they've, they've been a team that's on the downward spiral. But now, a lot of good young players. I mentioned Matthias DeLitt. Uh, they even got Memphis Depay, who's been so talismatic for them in the past few games with the Netherlands. And, you know, that move to Lyon uh, really away from Manchester United was one of the best moves that he could have made for his career. He's been one of the best forwards in the world. And he's scoring big goals against big national teams now. Uh, and uh, I think... Did you want to men- did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because uh, I I was going to end it with uh, with the revival of uh, of the, the honorable mentions. Oh, honorable mentions, it is. Okay, yeah. so uh, I feel like it's it's a it's an easy transition because I feel like I know that your honorable mention is of Hall uh, of Dutch descent. Oh yeah, my do I get right into it? Oh yeah, please do. Uh, so my honorable mention, and it's one that actually really warmed my heart. Um, when I saw it, uh, when when I saw it on Twitter, uh, Virgil Van Dyke, yeah, the the Liverpool center back, uh, the uh, Dutch international captain, also scored a huge goal against Germany to tie it, and also, you know, kind of make their year far worse than what it's been. Um, but after the game, uh, at you know, actually for context, at halftime, the the referee who was officiating that game. Um, at halftime, he had was found it a, out. Was it a referee or a linesman? I think it might have been the, the referee, but I could be wrong. Regardless, it was it was one of the the match officials. Uh, and at halftime, he had found out that his mother had passed away. And then after the game, and you know, there's always uh, referees are never really, uh, I guess, liked in a way. You know what I mean? Especially, I mean, especially in the prem. I watch a lot of prem soccer, and you know, sometimes the referee can be abysmal, and you, you just kind of look at them the wrong way but at the same time you know they are humans they they do do a great job of what they do and Virgil van Dyke, you know he heard about the situation uh the referee was in tears after the game and to see him consoling him and embracing him 
I thought that was such a nice touch from the captain. That was so cool to see. And he even, and then there was, uh, there was a quote. He even, he even told him, you know, it was, you know, it was a top class performance on him on on officiating the game. He did a great job, and you know, wished him his condolences. You know, they shared a hug at the end, and then kind of went their own ways. That's my honorable mention. I, it was, it was a touch of class. It was a good moment to see. Very, very cool. Uh, and both a player that we liked because plays for Liverpool, played for Celtic. I think it, it, it pairs up really, really well. Yeah. I have two, uh, two very quickly. Uh, one, um, I want to give like an honorable mention, but a shout out to Tim Cahill, who played his last game for Australia last weekend. Uh, and there was like a whole celebration. He was very emotional. Uh, and I mean, I don't think any other player represents Australia as much as Tim Cahill. He was, even though he was... Um, he was in exile almost from Australia, but in club soccer for so long, played for Everton, played for uh, Everton, New York, played Everton for New York legend Rebels. Also, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then he came back to uh, to Australia, played for I think Melbourne City. I want to say I, I I mean he played in Australia uh, and played his last game. Uh, at least if it's not his last game, he did get kind of like a testimonial, almost not not necessarily a testimonial, but like got a celebration, and it was very cool to see. Very cool to see and. One of the best players out of that part of the world. Yeah. Um, for sure, for sure. Uh, and another one is uh, more uh, here, more uh, uh, a local player, um, Olivier Océan, uh, who is a striker from uh, from Brossard in Quebec. I think, Bro- I think Brossard is the place, at least. If it's not, you know, shout at me and uh, I'll apologize. <laughs> um, but Olivier Océan, a Quebec striker, uh, Canadian international, former, I guess, Canadian international, hasn't played for the national team in a little while, but he uh, signed at the beginning of the season with a uh, small Norwegian Division II team, and uh, they got promoted uh, earlier this week, Uh, so really cool to see, and uh, it kind of makes me think, I tweeted about this um, a few days ago, and I was like, you know, when, when Patrice Bernier signed from... Uh, I think it was Denmark to uh, to the impact. We didn't really know, at least in Montreal, it wasn't as known like how good this guy was. And then when he retired, he retired as an absolute legend for the team. He was one of the most important player in the franchise. And I kind of it kind of made me think when I saw that, just what could have been with Olivier Océan. If he came back and was one of the most prominent strikers at a time where, you know, Drago wasn't there yet, uh, Devayo had just left, he could have been a very, very important piece for this team. And I think he could have been at, not necessarily the celebrity status, and I don't necessarily want to talk in, in those terms, but in terms of uh, public image and, you know, how um, this guy obviously speaks both languages, like, could have been a very important like face for the franchise as well as Patrice Bernier. It could have been like the what could have been was very strong when yeah. I saw that when I saw that news. I was like, damn, that could have been so cool. Yeah. And I mean, next year he's 37. And I'm like, ah, what could a 37-year-old Olivier Ancien bring to an impact team? Which, you know, it's probably not gonna happen, most likely, but what could like? Well, would you prefer a thirty-seven-year-old uh, Ocean or? Um, I mean, he's not with the club anymore. Or would you have preferred a Mancosu? 
<laughs> you know I what think, I mean? I think I think the silence speaks for itself. Yeah, for sure. You know, sorry to prolong it a bit more, but you know, before before uh, we ended off, maybe a few shout outs. Um, we always mention Pressbox Hattrick. Shout out to them. Um, you know, still going strong, almost at 150. It, we're almost at episode almost 150. Almost at 150, a podcast that Tristan and I used to co-host together along with Julie McKenzie, uh, Vince Morello, Safia Mad, uh, Harrison Milo, Raha Jason. Uh, and now it's uh, it's uh, Dustin Kagan Fleming and Ireland Compton at the home. So uh, Yeah, uh, shout out to Elias, who's doing a great job with uh, beat writing for the, uh, for the link on the Stingers uh, soccer programs. Um, you know, shout out to the Scrum, shout out to Julie McKenzie. Um, and yeah. <laughs> so go go listen to all of those um the press box hat trick is on the link newspaper.ca on soundcloud and it's also on itunes and google play the scrum is on all of those as well yeah. uh if you don't know it's a podcast about sports media and uh we're, we break down sports media and uh this show is on um is on the the third kit website and uh if you want to it's on iTunes as well, and uh, we're trying to make it on other on other platforms. But uh, podcasting has been more and more complicated within the years. At least uh, I've been doing this for like five years now, and I feel like every every other year it's been more and more complicated. Anyways, so um, we uh, we aren't gonna hold you on much longer. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to give a final shout out to Naimalu for creating the logo. Uh, and um, and you guys for listening to the show. Uh, I am at Tristan D'Amour. He is at Dallas Perez, at Das Alex Perez, and we are at TTK Podcast. Until next time, we will hear you on next time. Excuse me for being excited, people. <laughs> <laughs>